Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the third of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters based at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I'm serving as the host for these discussions. The link to the discussion is the same every day. So if you found us here through the Zoom link, you can find us here via the same link every day. And this uh, discussion, the COVID call, will take place every day at 5 p.m. Eastern time, Monday through Friday, for the foreseeable future. Please help spread the word, and also please send me your suggestions for guests, and you can self-suggest if you want to. Don't be modest. Please also send me ideas for topics. Also, as of today, you can hear these COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for COVID calls. Again, that's at soundcloud.com, search for COVID calls. I will also make the link available via my Twitter handle at US of Disaster. I think that's a sentence if I had said that five years ago, I'd have no idea what in the world I would have been talking about. But anyway, um, you know, we can now hear those calls archived. So I just wanted to um, once again circle back as to the purpose of this, why COVID calls. Um, and I explained this in the, on Monday, after disasters strike, I have a habit of calling around, uh, literally calling experts to get their perspective on what I should be paying attention to. I'm a historian, so I'm looking for patterns across time, but I'm always trying to also understand the way that those patterns meet us now uh, in real time. How does that history come to bear on our, our events and the way we, think about disaster and how we make sense of what's happening to us right now. I decided in this instance with this COVID-19 pandemic that I could make these calls public. And so that's exactly what we're doing. I'm trying to amplify the work of a really tremendous collection of disaster researchers that we have around the world. Uh, and um, I have great speakers booked to talk with us for the next several weeks already. Tomorrow, I'm going to speak with Dr. Esther Chernak. Dr. Chernak is the director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication at the Drexel Dornsife School of Public Health. And she also served in the Philadelphia Department of Public Health for 25 years. Today, I am very eager to talk with our guest, Sarah DeYoung. Sarah is a core faculty member of the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. She is an expert in applied social and community psychology. And we're gonna talk about the psychology of evacuation and sheltering. We're gonna talk about vulnerable populations in disaster as well as pets and the psychology of disaster. Sarah, thank you so much for making time to talk today. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. I wanna remind everyone that you can ask questions in the chat and we will get to the questions throughout the conversation today. Right, so sounds, with- Sounds good. Great, so why don't, we, why don't we jump right in? You're an expert in disaster evacuation decision-making, and I want to talk with you about that in a couple different ways, uh, thinking about personal decision-making, but also thinking about it in the way that institutions and governments have been making decisions. And we have literally been watching, i take my own university as an example, um, watching them make decisions that affect 20,000 plus people, literally with shifting information um, day by day. And we've seen that, of course, in our own families and in our communities, our workplaces, as well as our government at different levels. So I'm really glad that you could talk with us about that. I guess, Sarah, I'd just like to start by asking if you could 
bring us into your mind a little bit, help us understand what factors go into how people make decisions for evacuation. And I guess we're, you know, we're talking about sheltering and isolating. And I guess I want to ask you this question, are those the same theoretically when we talk about evacuation? Are we considering the same sort of psychological factors as we would when we think about shelter? Well, I think if we're thinking about sheltering in terms of a protective measure, there are a lot of similarities, but it is a bit different because sheltering in place and making the decision to evacuate to another location is a little bit different because the logistics are different. But some of the decisions that people are making are going to be made um, in similar ways at the psychological level. People are going to be looking for social cues. They're going to be looking for environmental cues about how they're going to make those decisions. And some of those social cues would be looking at peers. Are my peers engaging in social distancing and how are they doing that? And what my peers are doing are more likely to inform what I'll be doing during that time. And other issues are definitely thinking about the environmental cues. That would include um, perhaps news sources or even if you're seeing a lot of people um, posting about um, sheltering in place and social distancing, then that would inform people's decision-making processes. As far as organizational decisions, we see a lot of organizations acting like individuals by looking at contiguous organizations or peer institutions that are making these decisions, especially if you're talking about the case that you mentioned of academic organizations. So to come back to the individuals, I mean, you're saying some of the key factors then are, are um literally the people looking to see what their neighbors are and their friends are doing. I mean, we're talking about um, very decision-making based on information coming from very close sources of information. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also people have to trust those sources. So they have to feel like those, those sources are reliable um, because if um, they trust those sources, they're more likely to think that information is accurate. And again, they're going to look at sources that they've had um, as reliable sources in the past. So if I'm more likely to read New York Times on a regular basis during a disaster or crisis time, I'm more likely to continue reading that news source and believing it as reliable information. If I have a friend or a peer that I'm checking with about what they're hearing, then I'll continue checking with that same friend and peer network during the crisis scenario. So when we talk about... Um, I want to talk about evacuation and I want to talk about shelter because those are terms that may seem obvious on the face, but um, there's a lot of information packed into what we talk about an evacuation. Can you, from your perspective as a researcher, when you think about an evacuation and how people perceive what an evacuation is, how do you approach this? Yeah, I think when people are thinking of evacuation, they think, okay, well, that means I need to leave my geographic location, but sheltering in place, again, is a little bit different because then they think, well, okay, this, let's start thinking about isolation. So it's different in that aspect. But what I have seen, which is interesting, is that people started going from place to place at the beginning of the social distancing or shelter in place. So in a way, it's similar to evacuation because people want to be reunited with family members. Um, I've noticed a lot of the college students are sort of weighing that decision making in terms of do I want to go stay where my parents are, where I have a safety net, or do I want to stay where my peers are? And then the decision's a little bit more difficult for people who don't necessarily have that social safety net 
in, um, in their hometown, so to speak. And so it really depends on a number of factors. But again, I've seen a lot of people now in the last minute, even, sorry, that was my cat, um, even in the last minute scrambling to make a decision about, okay, how far will I be going? How long will I be going to that location? And then how does that determine the supplies that I'll be bringing in my overall decision-making process? When we talk about shelter in place then, what exactly, can you tell us what that means and tell us how decision-making around shelter might be different from evacuation? You And I just want to pause for a second. You just described something and I saw this with my own students, they were literally making decisions about evacuation towards shelter in mm -hmm. place, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a combination. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's, a, it's usually that complex, right? People mm -hmm. imagine if they're leaving a hurricane zone, they're then going to be seeking shelter, maybe even from the storm, but shelter as the storm unwinds in a different place. So mm -hmm. often the two concepts are, are together. But, but with that, can you say a little bit more about shelter? Sure. I mean, there are some actually some structural factors to consider because there are some people who are experiencing homelessness that may not have those same options that everyone has. So if you're thinking about theoretical models of decision making, like the protective action decision model is one that we know in psychology and disaster research. And one of the major um, factors in that model is um, do you have the available resources to even make that decision that you're trying to make? Um, so that would be a situation facilitator or a situational inhibitor and not having adequate shelter would be a situational inhibitor and so obviously people who again are having a difficult place to find safe sheltering even within their own homes if there's an interpersonal violence situation or even um, financial insecurities people have to make difficult decisions about where they're going to spend the long term if these um, lockdown orders are in place or if people are ordered really not to go anywhere other than essential travel that means spending a lot of time in one small location with um, one or two people or the family members um, or a very small network of people. We can imagine some very, very difficult decisions that people are having to, to make right now to follow government orders to shelter in place, but the place they're being ordered to shelter is not safe. Yeah, precisely. That can be problematic. I mean, uh, thinking about particularly vulnerable populations like migrant farm workers would be one example because there are seasonal crops, se different seasonal crop um, picking seasons in the United States when you have hundreds, if not thousands, of migrant farm workers that will be moving throughout the eastern seaboard, the west coast, moving from the southern border to New Jersey for the picking season and other locations and thinking about where are they going to be going, where are they going to be getting medical information about um, reducing person-to-person -person contact is, you know, how are those populations going to be protected? What are they going to do during this time? People who are incarcerated, um, people who don't have, um, again, these safety networks of support. We have good data about um, how homeless people follow or don't follow or modify um, official declarations to evacuate or to shelter? Um, I'm not an expert in the area, but I can actually point you towards someone who is Mark Sedembrino at Southeastern Louisiana University, um, actually does work in that area and he's published quite a bit. So that would be someone to speak with and I can send you his information after the call. Okay, sure. So let's talk then about the institutional and governmental level because we've been, um, you know, sometimes when a hurricane, like when Hurricane Harvey was approaching, it was in the news that there was um, 
uncertainty for a period of time, I'm thinking of Texas, about evacuation orders and even some squabbles back and forth between mayor and governor. That doesn't usually play out in the media. Mm -hmm. And if it does, it's sometimes done for particular political effect. But um, usually we don't see that. And in this instance, I'm astounded every single day. We seem to be seeing public officials making their mind up literally in public about what's coming next. What are you... Um, does that resonate with you? What are you seeing around sort of institutional decision-making here? Um, I think it's interesting because, again, going back to reliability of information, um, because if you have people who are disagreeing, the disagreements will play out in real time because they're literally, literally be saying information that's conflicting with, for example, if public health experts are seeing early on, this is a serious situation, the scenario is unfolding in a way that in which we might need to take dramatic action. And then a political leader that might be saying, well, things will probably get better very quickly. And then that's, that information is not consistent and that confuses people, um, quite frankly. And then people too start to say, well, wait a minute, if this person isn't on board with this person and this person, then um, they must be arguing about it. And then that reduces overall confidence in government. And having confidence in government is essential in protective action decision-making, actually. We have found that in preparedness research. Um, so thinking about people getting along and being on the same page is really important. And of course, in organizations, there will be disagreements um, and tensions and people you know, sort of debating about the best courts of action because you have to weigh like financial loss, um, you know, public relations and all these other issues over time. But again, having a clear and united front is important for maintaining public trust. Can we, does organizational psychology scale up from personal psychology? Are the same factors at play about trust looking to others? You, you mentioned a little bit about this earlier, one university looking, looking to another, uh, taking account of risks and rewards of of making decisions about evacuation or, or shelter or is that not a good we shouldn't go from the personal to the to the organizational or institutional um i think in some research you can um especially if you're looking at uh, my research area in particular in preparedness some of the individual factors you can see playing out at the organizational level again looking at contiguous organizations as a comparison for driving those decisions we also look at our contiguous peers like well should i buy this product did my peer buy this product okay do we make the decision to close early did another r1 institution um, that's comparable to us make that same decision so again looking at comparable um, institutions and networks is another way to think about how that decision might unfold but then also resource constraints are real at the individual level and at the organizational level because if an organization doesn't have the resource to ramp up on a certain supply or if a household or an individual doesn't have the resource resources to ramp up on their own personal supplies it becomes difficult no matter what their decision-making process might be so can you give me your sense of how the federal government has has worked uh, or not worked? Can you give us a, a report card here in terms of, uh, you know, the crisis communication that's come out of the CDC, out of yeah. any of the institutions you're watching, FEMA, HHS, or even out of the White House itself? Well, I can say that, so one of my um, 
my mentors going back to 2009 at NC State was Tom Berklin. I took his disaster policy course and he was on my dissertation committee. Lucky and one of the questions, yeah, and one of the questions he asked me on my comps that um, I was um, instructed to become proficient in and really was interested in learning was how um, Katrina happened from a policy perspective and how disasters unfold from a policy perspective. And what I wasn't aware of until I took Tom Berkman's course was how Katrina was made worse because of policy restructuring and decisions that were made right after 9-11. Now we're seeing similarities to this happening because of the major restructuring and the disbanding and distributing and high staff turnover in the White House. Um, and the weakening of the pandemic response team, it sounds eerily similar to those of us who study disasters as the way that um, the federal response was um, considered a failure in many ways during Katrina. So to a lot of us, it sounds very similar. I mean, it, it, just to, to so I'm gonna draw you out on this a little bit so that I understand, because when I think about governmental reorganization after September 11, what I know we saw was a, a militarization or a reorientation of a command and control mindset in the government agencies, which for the previous decade before that had been, the Cold War was over, and so they were considering many more hazards in their planning. I mean, is, it, is that too reductive to talk about a sort of military mindset? And we were talking about kind of a, a, a groupthink here. I mean, we talk about the psychology of a of an organization or an institution is that is is that correct or is it, am I being too simple here? Because your your discussion of Berkeley is really fascinating. If we if we the agencies that are supposed to be able to make complicated take complicated data and make decisions, if they themselves have less variability in their personnel in their mindsets, yeah. then we're going to come to simpler conclusions, right? Yeah, but I think it's still important important for those organizations to, again, include expert opinions and making sure that those opinions are informed by a variety of experts. Because of course, um, even if you think about a field like meteorology, you have experts um, who look at different levels of studying weather and um, predicting severe weather. And you don't want just um, the state governor looking at one weather forecast office. You want the state governor making decisions based on a multitude of other experts who are gonna be looking at storm surge modeling, hydrologists, and other types of forecasting. So really that decision-making at the government level should be driven by, again, expertise in science, um, but understanding that there will be diverse voices in science, but some extent you have a lot of agreement on basic um, factors that we can look to in terms of mitigating risk. So you think then that the disbanding of the pandemic task force at the National Security Council might have had an impact on the capacity to make good decisions here? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I want to shift over to another topic. We've got some questions coming in. Actually, let's take a question here because it does it's connected with what we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and you were talking about the, the basis of expertise and fact at the core of trust and decision-making. I think that's been particularly hampered here because of the lack of testing in the United States so that individuals who want to give public officials, I mean, the United States, one of the things we specialize in is questioning public officials. If democracy is good for anything, that's what it should be good for, right? But we would tend to historically give public officials the benefit of the doubt if they can demonstrate with some facts that these, these moves they're asking us to make are in our benefit. 
in the absence of good data, boy, they're really asking a lot of people, aren't yeah. they? Right. So I want to build, build off of that. And Roland Wall asks, he wants to ask it as his larger question here. He asks, does the eroding role and the status of government under uh, what he calls a neoliberal regime of recent decades, has that impacted the effectiveness of government to guide decision-making during disasters? So he's putting this, I guess, in a longer time frame. What do you think? Of neoliberalism on the pandemic response or this absence of testing or, or both, really? Yeah, I think it ties back to your discussion of Berkland and maybe what we've seen over the last 20 years and the capacity of our government to um, make decisions. Well, I think what was really striking to me was the um, the role of private organizations in disasters. As I was listening to some of these press conferences and the president was placing a heavy emphasis on big pharma and um, big box retailers like Target and Walmart. And that was interesting to me because although we acknowledge that some of those retailers and private entities can be useful in disasters because Walmart has logistics expertise and things like that, that we can um, use in a catastrophic um, disaster event. I just thought it was really interesting that the response in that case, the federal government seemed to be handing it over to corporate entities. And that's um, interesting because if you're thinking about the way um, the response should work in the national response framework, um, it's really unclear how that should be outlined in that way. And it was just striking to me. Um, it seemed at that point, the federal government was admitting failure by handing the response primarily to some of these larger corporate entities. Mm. Um, so in that way, neoliberalism plays a huge role. Absolutely. And then going back to the, the testing and the trust, um, I think the, it's, it's interesting because when, when I'm hearing and reading more about this absence of tests and the inability to ramp up the amount of tests that are available, it actually reminds me a lot of the smaller disasters um, that are no less serious, but smaller in scale that I've deployed for. And what's really interesting is a lot of people have said to me, I didn't think that I wouldn't get a warning when the reservoir was going to flood my home. I didn't think that that was possible or people evacuating from Paradise, California and their house is in flames. And that to them, looking back on it, they say, that's amazing. That, and they're, they're kind of in a way shocked because they've sort of relied on someone to warn them in that critical time. And I, I'm seeing a lot of the, you know, just personal feed on my own social media. And a lot of people are saying, where are the tests? Where the hell are the tests? Where are the tests? People who are, have, have vulnerable family members, people who are immunocompromised are saying, where the hell are the tests? We're really kind of surprised at this huge failure. And to me, I'm hearing, hearing the same frustrations that I hear in these other disasters where people are saying, whoa, I kind of trusted that someone would warn me, that the government would take care of me, that someone um, would be a protective mechanism, that there would be a protective system. And then there was this failure. So now I feel kind of um, surprised, frustrated, to say the least, is what people are saying. And so that's interesting to me because that seems to be a consistent theme. I think it really reveals a complicated um, set of issues right now in which Americans have uh, always felt comfortable, I think, criticizing government in time of disaster. I mean, this is part of our normal during and after disaster discourse is how well did the government perform, but always a baseline trust that there were experts there yeah. that were providing information and we can take issue with that information or not. And what you've just outlined with those fire episodes and what we're seeing here with the pandemic is we may be looking at situations where, no, actually, the 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 information isn't there. 
Yeah, I think the problem is that the information and the resources aren't there for the more vulnerable populations. And that's what's causing even more frustration and a lot of anger. Um, because um, actually, to be, you know, personal and honest, my ex-husband works at a hospital in um, Philadelphia. And I said, how, so really, how hard is it to get a test right now? And this was just yesterday when I was on the phone with him. And he said, oh, if you're rich or famous, it's not hard. And he kind of left. And now they've moved to in-house testing, but um, so they're ramping it up finally. But the fact that, you know, people who have wealth or access to connections and resources can get it more quickly is really unfortunate, but it's playing out, you know, at the broader scale already with um, who's more likely to be impacted by disaster events. This is no surprise to us in the disaster sociology world, but we're seeing it right now in real time with the pandemic. So I want to shift over to another area of your expertise, which is um, perfectly foregrounded by your cat. Uh, maybe I've seen two cats, maybe. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, and you've seen uh, three different cats here. Three so. cats. Fantastic. <laughs> this is wonderful. No, thank you. And I, this is something I think we're all seeing a lot of in these Zoom conversations in this sort of remote world that we've all entered. Um, but I want to ask you about the role of pets in disaster and um, maybe you know, start with your what you're seeing with the pandemic. Um, how do the presence or absence of pets in someone's life impact their behavior in the pandemic? Well, I think pets are a source of resilience and, um, you know, we actually rely on our pets for our well-being. And again, I've seen that in all the disasters that I've deployed for in um, the book that I'm working on with my uh, co-author, Dr. Ashley Farmer, Illinois State. We've deployed for uh, nine major disasters to interview people about their pets. And a lot of people say, you know, I lost my home. I lost my community. But if I could just find my pet, I would be okay. So a lot of people are actually looking to their animals for comfort at this time. What's really important, and I think people need to keep in mind, is that there will be a broader um, sort of community uh, systemic response or unfortunately consequence of people losing their jobs or having financial troubles. I think animal surrenders will likely go up because that's something that also happens after disasters is if people feel like they're financially insecure, you know, feeding a pet or having vet bills is another expense. And so it's difficult. You know, we don't really want to like, we have to be careful because there's a difference between intentional in animal abandonment, animal neglect and abuse, and then, you know, surrender, you know, it's a difficult situation because a lot of families are experiencing financial stress or when they have to evacuate from a disaster, they might not have a place to go that's pet friendly. And in the case of a pandemic, if someone's rent is unaffordable, um, you know, and they have to relocate, you know, pet-friendly housing will be a factor. And so that's why I'm fearful that there will be mass animal surrenders in the coming days. Um, I have a lot of friends who do advocacy work and spay and neuter, and right now it's kitten season. So a lot of kittens are being surrendered, but a lot of um, clinics are shutting down their spay and neuter operations because they don't want a lot of person-to-person -person contact. And so then pet overpopulation will get even worse during this time. Um, and then when you have a fire like the campfire, when you have a lot of animals where spay and neuter wasn't a high priority, um, in those locations, it becomes more of a mess. So um, again, spay and neuter is a kind of disaster. Sorry, that's my eight-year-old daughter here. She's just excited to be involved. Um, so, <laughs> sorry. No. Um, so again, I think that we should just be aware of the potential consequences of when humans are having hard times, it impacts animals. Because when, when people don't have the resources 
to get medical care or shelter with their animals, it will be more difficult um, because then they're gonna have to make choices about feeding their own families. And so in that case, they might say, oh, we have to surrender a dog because it's an added expense. I see. I wanna back up one step there just so I understand this a little better. Why do pets make people more resilient in disaster? Sure. Isn't a brother or a sister or a grandfather or, uh, or a spouse, uh, a child just as, I mean, if the issue is connection to mm -hmm. another living thing, um, shouldn't that supply the same kind of resilience? Or is there something special actually about non-human uh, animals being around that uh, helps resilience? Well, I think one of the key things we have to remember about animals is um, they're very forgiving um, and they're very politically neutral. Everyone loves the good dog or cat story, um, you know, and we see that in animal rescue. We even we're out collecting data. We're not discussing politics. You know, we could be in a shelter full of, um, you know, people that we don't know their political affiliation, but we love talking to them because they're animal people. And so it's really interesting. It's like in social psychology, we talk about common in-group identity. See. The common in-group identity model, you know, reduces conflict. And so we can kind of unite around the fact that most of us love animals. Animals are cute. They're relaxing. And I've seen, a, you know, an increase in animal videos, animal memes. And that's something that we can analyze more going forward in sociology, disaster sociology, like the role of um, people sharing their own pets for other people to enjoy on the internet as a way of coping during this time. But realistically, people do have, you know, emotional support animals, service animals, animals playing a huge role in the lives of people that, um, you know, are child free or aren't partnered. Um, you know, animals definitely playing a huge role in the social landscape that way. So you were sketching out one scenario, talking about surrenders. Mm -hmm. And I think we do have some evidence from China about that, right? Yeah, yeah, we do. There are instances in which I think what happened is people were going to a different town um, where they were, um, the town was deemed safer. And so people left in a hurry and they left the animals behind. And then in that case, it's similar to what I've seen with wildfires where people leave and they can't find the animal while they're evacuating or either they think they'll be back sooner than they will be able to re-enter the community. And in that case, the major risk is um, the animals not being able to access food or water. Is this a, I'm thinking here about the um, Chernobyl miniseries and one of the most devastating parts of that people I've talked to is the actually that they they show us that euthanizing squad there. Is that a normal function of government? Is that something we would expect would have happened in, in China? Or the pot more positive side of that, that government can have within its capacity to provide care uh, for animals that have been left behind? Or are we really in a situation where when animals get left behind, generally they're left to fend for themselves and they're neither destroyed nor are they fed? I think it depends on the context. Um, so speaking for the context of the United States, after um, Hurricane Katrina, the government passed, uh, well, a lot of people, there was an outcry of basically protecting animals because of people refusing to evacuate because they couldn't bring their animals. And so the 2006 Pets Act was placed. And so basically that's um, federal language that mandates that- Pets Act? Yes, mm -hmm. the 2006 Pets Act. And because of that now, the federal government said that they need, um, states need to account for the fact that people will evacuate and include it in their basic mitigation and planning. Okay. Um, but there, you know, I, I can um, talk a little bit more at length of, um, 
well, we, we're addressing this in our book too, but just because it's um, federal legislation though, it's left up to the states for interpreting how far they'd like to enforce or implement that. Okay, so let's um, move into one other area of your expertise, which has to do uh, with infant feeding and maternal care during mm -hmm. disasters. And I wonder, I mean, you know, this is part of a discussion more generally, I guess, of food security and insecurity and disaster. But can you take us a little bit into this research world? I think your work has been really cutting edge here and really breaking ground here. And I think people really would like to hear more about this and particularly how it relates to the pandemic. Sure. So with infant feeding, um, now again, context is key uh, because some of the information that I would share in um, in a high income country would be different than the health protective information that we're talking about in um, in a place where it's um, where access to clean water is less reliable. So I do want to make that clear because some of the information that I would say as someone in the United States, you wouldn't want to apply that same health information to someone who's say living in a, um, in rural Nepal. Okay, so just thinking about the, the difference here. So with the shortage of um, that's been driven by short term food hoarding has actually been an emerging issue here, people buying infant formula um, very quickly, not necessarily because there's a general shortage at the country level, but because people fear there will be a shortage. So now people are hoarding infant formula in the United States, in some cases, some isolated cases that I've seen my friend Carlene Gribble and colleague um, talk about this in Australia. And so again, there's not an actual shortage, but because people fear there will be, they're going and buying up the immediate supply at their local store, which is really unfortunate because um, again, especially if you're a low income family, affordability is really important. So this kind of goes back to this baseline um, root resilience mechanism that we could look at, which is increased baseline rates of breastfeeding. Um, because if um, more households had baseline rates of exclusive breastfeeding, then this immediate short term formula shortage would not hit families as hard. Um, and now I know there are a lot of complexities and nuances to this, but it's important for people to understand too that there are likely going to be a lot of people who are fearful about the formula supply and there are going to be a lot of lactation consultants who will be able to provide expert advice in some of these infant feeding specific problems. Um, one thing is that women um, or people who are breastfeeding may fear that their supply will dip because of stress or there are beliefs people who live through a disaster might think that their milk is cursed or spoiled. We've seen that after the Haiti earthquake and some other circumstances, but um, to, you know, based on my research, I encourage people to reach out to their, um, to their lactation specialists, their, their doctors and asking them for guided support and probably groups like the American Breastfeeding Association and other groups will be having a lot more availability in terms of resources and hotlines and, and um, resources for people to call and get the support that they need. Um, but certainly understanding that there's a lot of myths around infant feeding that can inform health behavior. And so those myths kind of ramp up during disasters. So to be aware of that. How much do we expect 
um, this isolation, either the shelter in place or the social distancing to uh, impact lactation consultant services or um, newborn moms groups and people coming together, you know, in these kind of contexts? Are we, are you looking for real disruption there? Um, so I'm not an IBCLC. I'm not a board certified lactation consultant or a lactation expert, but I do have a lot of peers and friends who are in that group. And I imagine a lot of, well, from my observations, a lot of them were already having, um, doing phone services and availability of hotlines, especially during disasters, during the Fort McMurray wildfire, they switched to hotlines um, to ask people what kind of support they needed. And so I think using those same strategies and protocols will probably be unfolding again. Uh, providing remote um, services. But again, it is difficult because one-on-one -on -one lactation support is a key part of the practice in the profession. Um, another thing that I specifically am concerned about in terms of maternal care and maternal stress, I actually have data that I'm working on that's in progress from Hurricane Florence of maternal health and um, stress and evacuation. And what I found is that um, stress um, is likely to be a huge factor for people who are pregnant and who have newborns. And so I do worry about the peer support network that um, women who are pregnant or who will be giving birth during this um, pandemic timeframe, how social distancing might impact them, especially in terms of things like uh, postpartum depression and people who are at risk for those kinds of um, issues and symptomology. I wanted to um, thank you for that. And I wanted to ask you a question connected to the, the way you've described your work, particularly just now, um, is, uh, to me, it's very exciting to think about the methodologies that you use, and you're a core faculty member of the Disaster Research Center, which is a august, uh, you know, center of disaster research in the United States and around the world. And for people who don't know it, it was founded um, by a, a pair of researchers. Well, it was a group of researchers, Enrico Corantelli and Russell Dines, and others who founded this unit in the Cold War to do immediate. Um, post-disaster studies. So this is, it's always been a center of um, temporal, temporally rich research, you know, that, that you'd be looking to gather data literally as the disaster is, is ending and unfolding. And, I, and the way you've described your own work is very much in that mode. Now, so I, I guess my question there has to do with how social distancing is going to impact the way that the disaster research center researchers can do their work. I mean, you're now doing your work when it means to go to the field, mm -hmm. going to the field is going and getting on a zoom call now. And this yeah. has impact for the IRB for, for our ethics of research and for the people, I mean, the digital divide um, is something if you wanted to go talk to vulnerable populations after disaster, after a hurricane, you, physically go go there and, and find those people and if they're willing yeah. you speak with them but the yeah. digital divide potentially puts something in our a barrier in our way to do that kind of work can you say a little bit more about disaster research methodology at this time I mean I find this really perplexing frankly well actually I think it's not all that different because a lot of the calls that I did in the early phases of my pets research I did zoom calls with people who are working especially if they're working at the national level um, and they're in another state I would do a zoom call to gather some information about their perceptions and their experiences and I would use that information to then inform the questionnaires that I had for then going on the ground and of course a lot of our face-to-face -face field work was you know conducted in coffee shops or places like that or 
um, in the communities that were heavily impacted, going into animal shelters, locations like that for interviews. Of course, we can't do interviews like that right now, but what we can do is we can observe our social systems and our networks. Like right now, I'm looking out of the window of my apartment complex and I'm seeing um, people still gathering in the center of the, uh, there's a like an overflow of parking area and I'm still seeing families gathering there daily. And I think that's interesting. And I'm sort of observing that and trying to understand what is it about the families that live here in my apartment complex. They're a close knit network um, of immigrant families and they're still going out and meeting up at, as they were before on a daily basis and playing and riding their bikes and playing racquetball in this overflow space. And I'm curious to see, you know, if that will change over time. So I think we're all, all of us who are social scientists who study disasters, we're observing our surroundings and wh wherever we are, um, we'll have some, some notes that we want to take or some observations that we can use to inform our research questions about this event. So in a way, um, it's unfortunate that it's impacting so many people. It's impacting everyone at the global scale. But um, the way that I come up with research questions is by thinking about things that I see in my own life and then saying, hmm, how does that, you know, uh, relate to a disaster scenario and then pursuing that more. And so I think a lot of people will be um, in tune with that. I see. Oh, well, I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, as a historian, uh, if, if you tell me I can't get to the archive, I start to break out in a cold sweat, you know? So for yeah. me, the the social distance from my research is something that I'm having to try to figure out how to, I mean, that's part of what these calls are about. I think to a certain extent is trying to build this research network as one where we can also gather together using this kind of technology and have these conversations in real time. I want to point out a few things from the chat. Eileen Young, um, to our last point, said she's 100% doing data gathering from Discord servers right now and also as of today, Costco. Uh, yeah. So thank you for that. Uh, Christina Berman has a question. She's wondering about the role of the type of threat in terms of people's decision to evacuate or shelter in place or to take countermeasures. This is not only related to asymptomatic transmission of COVID, but also the I'm, but I'm healthy reasoning by people when they violate recommendations against gathering. She says she's in Florida, but also in a larger context like slow moving disasters of climate change, complacency about hurricanes in areas that either have historical memory or minor hurricanes or no recent memory regarding hurricanes. So I think her question here is um, more about experience. Yeah, yeah. experience and yeah. the relation of the threat to decision making. Sure. So we, you know, that again relates back to having a repertoire about disasters. And so, for example, Gary Webb studies, you know, disaster subcultures, and he's talked about people who live in a hurricane prone or tornado prone area, they might be more well equipped to understand, okay, this is how it works during hurricane season, we stock up, we do this. Um, so people not necessarily having a repertoire for a global pandemic can lead to a little bit more confusion because people say, okay, I'm not sure how this is supposed to unfold. What am I supposed to do? What are the protocols? And so I think in that way, that's um, sort of um, accounts for a lot of the lag we have and so many people who are still um, engaging in sense making because they don't have experience with this kind of event. Um, so yeah, that's okay. That's what thank I have to say about that. Thank you. Let me get to a question here from Leo. And this is taking us back earlier in the conversation. Um, he asks, related to the discussion on psychology of evacuation versus sheltering, could you speak to the differences in temporal permanence? For example, um, from, from some shelters, this idea that if you leave, you left. 
but somehow cheating on sheltering at home is easier. Like I'm going to run out for a quick run of errands or I'm going to get a cup of ice cream. How big of a deal, he asks, do you think this is in this situation? Do you think this affects the ability of folks to cope with the crisis one way or, or the other? Um, so that's a really great question. So I actually, I deployed to um, a shelter in Dallas during Hurricane Harvey and it was Labor Day weekend. So the event was still actually happening. Um, and a lot of the people that were at that shelter were um, actually rescued on C-130s out of Beaumont in Port Arthur, Texas. So there were about 1900 people in that shelter, in that convention center at that time. And what was really striking to me and my colleagues is that it was a very institutional setting. And I think a lot of other disaster researchers um, might have similar thoughts or perspectives about the feeling of a large uh, public shelter. And again, this is why you know, it becomes a, a last option for a lot of families because they're not pleasant places by any means. Um, you know, you have the mass distributed Red Cross cots, you know, families sleeping side by side, no private space to breastfeed, no, um, you know, shared showering space, no place to change a baby's diaper, no place to bathe a baby. That was, a, you know, things that are, um, you know, basic needs are, you know, people will be fed and they will have a place to sleep, but there are other things there that make it really difficult and um, psychologically not pleasant to be in. And so I think that, and they're also heavily policed. So that's another thing to think about for communities that may not have as much trust for very good reasons in uh, law enforcement. And so if we're sheltering in our own homes, you know, that that is of course different because we have access to creature comforts and um, it, it will definitely have a different psychological impact. That said, it also might sort of give a feeling of everything is more okay than it really is. So that I think has also been one of the reasons why it's been slower for people to really take social distancing seriously um, because, okay, I've just been at home today watching Netflix. I can run out to the store. Okay, what's really going on here? I'm not seeing anyone in my immediate network who's hospitalized because of the illness. And so then it just becomes harder for people to take it um, seriously because again, that absence of cues that I was talking about early on. We have good data about how people's psychological condition will either deteriorate or remain stable, or I can't imagine getting better, but um, over periods of time in isolation? Um, I'm not familiar with isolation literature. I do have a colleague at UGA, um, Dr. Kirsten Emerson, who studies loneliness in particularly in older adults. And so I do think that's something that we'll see unfolding over time is understanding um, how this event will impact different levels of loneliness and how that will be um, studied in the future in terms of mental health and disaster research. But again, you know, we, we could predict which populations would be more susceptible to that. That would be people who have fewer contacts, fewer living relatives, um, people that People that don't have a dog who aren't going to go out and walk their dog, you know, we know this from Kleinenberg's heat wave, people who had pets had more social contact. So here, even if you're going to go out and walk your dog in your apartment complex, you can at least wave to your neighbor. And so I think that that will be interesting to see how that plays out and um, understanding the complexities there. One of the things we know from the Cold War, I mean, throughout the 50s and 60s, the uh, government, you know, civil defense planners commissioned a lot of psychological research about how people would behave in fallout shelters. And um, 
I think that the results are, were pretty mixed. You know, it was hard for them to come to firm conclusions. It was actually kind of an interesting little like micro genre of news reporting that, you know, some family would go into the shelter. This happened around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The family would go into the shelter for two weeks and then they come out and there's a reporter standing there saying, how did you do? How was it? And of course, mm-hmm. they invariably said, well, it was fine. And we come out feeling that we can definitely, you know, beat the commies because we can be underground for two weeks. Uh-huh. But, the, but by, the, by the later 60s and into the 70s, seems like the trend is that the government is, is promoting mass sheltering. That there's a fear that individuals in isolation um, will not perform as well in a post-attack environment than if they could replicate their normal social patterns, more or less, but in a yeah. mass shelter under yeah. underground. That's old data. That's old thinking. But I've, it's been on my mind a lot yeah. lately because that option's not available to us. We're in the individual fallout shelters, in a sense, in this in this moment in time. Yeah. Um, so there's a really interesting book that I've been recommending to people. It's called um, Tribe. Um, by Sebastian, I'm not remembering his last name right now, but it's about people, particularly in returned combat veterans, how um, part of the difficulties in coping is not necessarily just the PTSD from combat, but the changes that are happening with um, not being able to be near that social network the peers that were there, that tight-knit community, and also return disaster volunteers. Um, One of our graduate students, Ronnie Frazier, is studying this right now, how when people return from even short-term volunteerism deployments, they might be missing that network. They they miss that tight-knit community. So having that community of comfort and that social cohesion and the sense of community can be really important for people's well-being. Um, You know, and it, it, really, I mean, this is unprecedented in my lifetime, understanding how this form of social distancing will impact people. Of course, a lot of people who study social, um, social media and social networks might say, well, we were already distancing one another. <laughs> so right. um, some things aren't changing in a lot of ways, or maybe because of social distancing and limited face-to-face contact, people will develop new and innovative ways to have even more uh, virtual online sense of community. Right, right. I, I, this is just a, a, a hunch of mine, but I feel like we're at one of these technological transformation moments that happens um, once in a while where we, we're going to look at um, these remote, uh, these distance technologies like this call we're on right now, um, not as something sort of novel anymore, but I think in six months we're going to see these as absolutely essential to the way we work. I think we're right at a tipping point of that. But um, I wanted to get to, there's a question here from Kristen uh, Gupta, sure. coming back to something that was said earlier. It's a really provocative idea here. She's asking again about your sort of notion of contiguity and decision-making, which is a really important concept. And she says, um, how do we think of decision-making um, when we have other places to look to, so the contiguities may not be so contiguous, at least geographically. For example, she says she only canceled her travel after friends in China told her to do so. What do you think mm. about that? That's interesting because maybe she was thinking that they had more experience with what the impacts of the virus could be. So she's just saying, well, they're familiar with the severity and impacts. And so that might be uh, more accurate. And so she was using that decision-making process because there's something called, you know, obviously we have like physical and geographic distance, but then we do have actual social distance, not in 
the terms that we know it from the past few weeks, but social distance in terms of like what's happening to the people on the other side of the world. Well, we actually are less likely to, for example, see news coverage of a catastrophic event in, um, you know, another country and then think, oh, that could happen to me. But if this is a peer that she's been talking to on a daily basis, then she'll say, okay, this is, you know, this is serious and they've had experience with it and now it will be happening here. But yeah, that's interesting too, because I'm thinking about in even in the disaster research community, we have colleagues in Italy, we have colleagues in China, um, and we're listening to what they're saying. And I think because of that, a lot of us were a little bit more on alert earlier. I mean, I told my students um, a week before UD closed, when I had an in-person lecture, I said, you know, we're probably going to go online and here's what we're going to do. And a lot of them were like, what? what are you talking about? I have, I have not heard about this at all. <laughs> Dr. DeYoung is crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, but we were kind of in tune with our networks because we have a global network of other disaster researchers in other countries that were dealing with it already. Um, so. I think yeah. that sort of unfolding nature of this slow disaster has been one of the really remarkable aspects of this. And Kristen's given a follow-up comment, which she sees this as a unique moment as a researcher that it's literally yeah um, unfolding and the media has given us those images but i do think there's a sense in which people i'll talk about myself have watched those images from china and italy over the last few months and thought yeah that's that looks bad and in some part of my mind i knew that was that's where we were headed but there was a lack of acceptance there to that and i think if yeah. i you know if we had come out and said a month ago um we need to be prepared for people um that they're going to be at home for three months, you would have been considered absolutely alarmist. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of this has to do with like the psychology of denial and um, the myth of invincibility. So after the Hawaii, and I have a tweet about this this week that like incidentally almost went viral because I was saying this is interesting. It reminds me of the research that I did with my colleagues, David Neal and Jeanette Sutton on the Hawaii false alarm. After the false alarm, we asked people like, what did you do? What information were you gathering? And in that 38 minutes in which you thought a nuclear missile was headed to the island, we asked them all these, these series of questions on a Likert scale. And one of the things that came out as um, statistically significant in our regression analyses was that people thought on the Likert comparison scale that other people on the island or in their community were more likely to die than themselves. And so I thought that was interesting because there you're talking about, you know, a very small space and thinking about the potential um, consequence of a nuclear missile on, a, you know, a, a place like the Hawaiian Islands, and thinking about um, how that goes back to this myth of invincibility, and I do think that even now with some of the stricter measures, the uh, news coverage, I'm still seeing a lot of like people saying, "Well, I have a wedding later this summer. Should I cancel it?" Da da da. Or I have a something in two, a birthday party in two weeks. Are we going to cancel it? And I'm sitting here going, "Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be canceled." But I think that it's. I think, you know, we can't really like hold that against them too much because it is um, a mechanism of protection, self-protection. Sure. Um, it's sort of a coping mechanism uh, psychologically. People say, okay, well, this could happen to me. My, my home isn't going to flood. My home won't burn down. And we're running out of good on my eight-year-old here. So yeah. <laughs> any other final questions would be... Yeah, let's, let's just get to one um, final question here from Yana, who asks, is there any evidence that disasters like this one um, might render people especially um, 
vulnerable health-wise that will have impact on their political beliefs? In other words, do you think we're going to come out of this with Americans' uh, opinions about Medicare for All, for example, changed? Yeah, it's interesting. I saw, you know, a, a tweet a few days ago or a meme where someone said, oh, um, just a little bit of socialism and uh, basic human rights to uh, help combat this pandemic. And, you know, because it's really interesting because you have a lot of conservative American politicians who are very much against um, some social safety nets on board right away with some of these relief initiatives and, um, you know, free coronavirus testing and all of these other things that some of the more progressive candidates have been saying all along. And honestly, you know, I've seen this in my pets research, my infant feeding research, when communities are healthier before the disaster, they're more likely to recover more quickly and have more assets to deal with it during the disaster. And so honestly, um, I think that people probably will change their minds because if you have people who are medically vulnerable and they're trying to decide now, oh, you know, I have to, um, you know, have chemotherapy or radiation treatment, but the coronavirus is happening and people are scared. And so they might say, yeah, you know, hey, maybe this um, healthcare for universal healthcare is not such a bad idea after all, because a lot of people are truly scared for their families and thinking about how this will impact them in the long run. Sarah DeYoung, thank you so much for enlightening us on many different topics here today. And I hope we'll get you back on another one of these, these calls and for giving us an hour and to introducing us to your cats and your uh, daughter daughter. there. So um, I just want to let everybody know that these calls happen uh, every day, Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. And I do welcome um, suggestions for speakers or if you yourself would like to be involved in one of these conversations, please let me know. Tomorrow we have public health expert and physician um, Esther Chernak. And on uh, Friday, we'll have a discussion of emergency management and American federalism with Samantha Montano and Patrick Roberts. So you definitely don't want to miss either of these conversations coming up. Thank you again, Sarah. And this conversation will be archived and I'll send out the link to that as soon as I can. Thanks, everybody. Stay healthy. Bye. Bye.